This is Impact, a look at the things that matter in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Some interesting bills are coming out of the early weeks of the Nevada legislature. Two this week that deal with decriminalizing traffic violations. As it stands, you get a ticket, you can't pay it, and then you're pulled over for a broken taillight, and you are arrested for not paying your first ticket that you couldn't afford to pay. So you lose your job, maybe even your home. Then you really can't afford to pay the ticket. We'll talk to one of the legislators who is trying to stop that vicious cycle. Then Nathan Trenholm and Justin White are data guys who have gotten a lot of traction the last few years. The State Department of Education uses their services, as do some national groups. Three-fourths of their business, though, is serving local Clark County schools. That business has just been cut off. And Trenholm and White have brought an arbitration alleging copyright infringement. We're going to talk to them in a moment. But first... Governor Steve Sisolak changed the capacity for classrooms in Nevada, signaling a possible return for all students before the end of the school year. School classrooms can now be at 75% of maximum and school buses at 66%. Everybody must be masked. One of the unanswered questions from this announcement is how capacity is defined. Clark County schools regularly have 40-plus kids in the classroom. Are we going to have 75% of 40-plus kids or 75% of 22 kids? Also, the CDC guidelines that recommend students go back to school is based on classroom sizes in the low 20s. Lines are out the door at UNLV, but COVID vaccine availability is about to get squeezed. Moderna has announced that shipments to southern Nevada will be delayed because of the bad weather back east. Back east. They always ruin our fun. Speaking of fun, we now have a new name for our airport. Congratulations to former Senator Harry Reid. It's well-deserved. But the airport will still keep its call letters LAS, which is what I use to book flights. And a quick update from the story we did two weeks ago on Bailey Middle School being shorted money for their low-performing students. Since our interview and a subsequent story in the Nevada Current, Bailey Middle School principal Daryl Wyatt says he has not heard a word from anyone in the district. But the district did send an email to trustees telling them my story was untrue, without any details of what they thought was untrue, of course. This is CCSD. They are more concerned with slandering a journalist than they are with communicating with their employees. We're going to keep checking on this story. I read the news today, oh boy. Back in March of last year, when the world was falling apart in ways that we've never seen before, we were all trying uh, to figure out what these things were that we were wearing on our faces. I saw a Facebook update from our next guest, who lives in Pahrump. She was making masks for people as fast as humanly possible. I talked to Sarah Walker about how the virus was affecting Pahrump and who she was sending her masks to. And we got Sarah on Zoom now for an update. Welcome. Um, How's your year been, Sarah? Oh, since we last talked, it seems like we've lived 10 years, Hmm. literally. But we have to back up before March, right before I started making masks, I think the whole town of Pahrump really had the virus before there was ever testing or anything because we were all sick in February. Interesting. Yeah, like we didn't get out of bed for a week and that's not like me at all. In the town of Pahrump, we live five miles out of the center of town, but we're all spread out. And so whatever hit, you know, it hit at the end of January and by March 1st, I was ready to get up and I started paying attention to this story, Mm -hmm. you know, and by the middle of, well, I worked on a mask pattern for like a month, Mm. but by the 24th of March, I, I couldn't sit still and just watch things happen. And so I wound up asking for donations and we wound up, uh, just sewing masks as fast as we could. My mom and dad lived in, in Vegas and they would send stuff that they gathered up. And then I had, you know, some local places here. So, you know, I was knee deep in sheets and (laughs) cotton fabric and, you know, what pattern to use and, you know, 
we just started sewing on, I think around the 24th. And then I had this sweet lady that came from here that worked in Vegas. And so we got this whole system down to where we were delivering masks and she was doing one or 200 every Monday or Tuesday to the, to the senior centers or wherever somebody needed them. And we just did that for months. You just said your uh, mother and father lived in Las Vegas. I understand that your father is no longer with us. You okay? Yeah, he passed. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um, he passed away on November seventeenth, but he's he tested. He's one of the ones that tested positive twice. He had dementia. The last time I saw him, he was here to pick up his cane on around the 4th of July, but he wasn't hospitalized until August 1st. He was there for three weeks. We thought he was fine. He gets home and he's re-hospitalized in October with a brain bleed and he tested positive for the COVID virus again. Well, with dementia, we're finding out that basically they go downhill really fast. And so if you get somebody out of the hospital, you're still not out of the woods. Mm. And part of the reason why I contacted you, you know, there's so much, you know, I've lost over a hundred people this year. (laughs) So it's, um, it's like every part of my life, people who helped me run the masks out to Vegas, people who gathered the stuff, they're passing away now you know, and my second father figure, they had his funeral in our old church three months to the day that that my dad died. So this is really tough, but, you know, I just have to share a story because it's so overwhelmingly unusual, mm-hmm. you know, kind of warn people, you know, you're not out of the woods. If you get out of the hospital, please, you know, still wash still socially distant. I'm, I, I want to give you a hug. I, I wish that I could just go to Pahrump and give you a hug, and I will someday. Brother also um, had some issues. Uh, talk to me about what happened there. You know, every time we think that we're, we're going to be okay and things are, you know, my birthday was the 3rd of February. When it happened to be on my birthday that we came back home, and I found out that my brother's auto shop in North Carolina in Mooresville had burned to the ground and he lost everything. And so we're trying to get the word out. NASCAR is going to be in Vegas in March. And if you hear Jesse Walker, Mm. that is my brother and he is supporting five kids and five or seven employees. So he he needs like $20,000 a month just to cover the bills. And now he's lost all of his tools and the, you know, you, an auto shop is like a fabric store. You know, there's so much invested in the supplies to get you to be able to do your job mm-hmm. and when it goes up in smoke, like he's, he's salvaging things, but it's going to take some time. And so, you know, the first original story was nine classic cars lost in a fire and oh. it's Moore's and it's Jesse Walker. And there's a GoFundMe page, but you know, if you have um, even a jar of nuts and bolts, send it to him, you know, because right now it's like, you know, my husband and I, even though this has been a really rough year, not much has changed for us. He's got epilepsy. And so we've lived close to the bone for years. Nothing has changed for us except for we're you know, we always do service and stuff. And so, but we're helping people. And we're, when we came home from my dad's funeral, I just said, we're doing Christmas. We built Christmas for 25 kids out here through donations and just got them sent back out. And there were people that were willing to help. And I basically have a really nice front porch. And I said, please come and drop this stuff off. They just dropped it off. And then I would text someone else and say, you know, can you pick this up and deliver it to these families? And, you know, that's what we did. So we just bagged stuff up in garbage bags and sent it on its way. And there's a lot of people that are helpful out here like that. 
So are you still making masks? Occasionally, you know, the hardest part for me after my, after my dad, you know, we bury, we, okay. So when you have a body that you have to transport, he was born, he was uh, born in Blanding, Utah. So we had to get a permit to, to travel with him. And because of it being Thanksgiving week, we didn't get his okay to go until we buried him on Saturday after Thanksgiving. And um, anyway, it was just a long thing. And I said, you know, I'm not even going to think about this till after Christmas. And so my focus was get home and get into helping other people for Christmas. And then I thought, okay, we're okay. And then when our friend died last week, I told my husband, I'm done. I like walk around. I walk around the house. I I've given up the Kleenex. I just have a cry towel, (laughs) you know? So anyway, so coming up to Easter, I decided instead of making a whole bunch of masks, because I still had a whole bunch cut out, you know, as they, as they're needed and I still have fabric and stuff. So, you know, if we run out, then I can hurry up and whip some up, but it's taken me some time to be able to sit down because if you can imagine some of the things I have cut out are my dad's sheets that, you know, the top sheet that was never used. And, and so I decided I was going to, especially right now, um, I traced around a bunny and I'm making these things called love bunnies. And it's something to hold on to for like kids in crisis or, you know, somebody that I know who has lost someone, they just need something to do with their hands. And so that's what I'm going to do is just do a few of those up and try to just stay positive. That sounds wonderful, actually. I'm going to check in with you um, in a few months, probably over the summer. Sarah Walker, uh, thank you for talking to me. Hey, thanks for taking the time to hear our story, too. This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Back in October, you know, when we had nothing to do and weren't stressing out about the future of the free world, Nathan Trenholm and Justin White filed a lawsuit against the Clark County School District. Trenholm and White are the proprietors of Data Insight Partners, which contracts with school organizational teams, SOTs, to provide data to admin teachers, students, and parents in over 35 schools. Data Insight Partners started after the passage of AB 469, which is commonly known as the Reorganization Law, or REORG for short. The REORG created autonomous school zones and was supposed to create a marketplace, quote-unquote, where schools could buy services that they needed from the central district. For instance, everyone needs maintenance, which the district provides. So a line item is taken out of each school's budget for maintenance. If a school wanted to hire an extra maintenance person or perhaps a DJ for special events, they could out of their own budget. They could also buy services from outside vendors, vendors like Data Insight Partners. I've talked with about half a dozen principals who all say things like their data dashboards provide the schools they partner with the ability to really get granular or Data Insight software allows our teachers to get into the weeds. But this fall, the Clark County School District forced schools to use their data software, their newly created data software, which looks like a clone of Data Insight Partners' software, except it doesn't work as well and isn't as reliable. One principal told me, it's just a smidge better than spreadsheets. Oops. Nate Trenholm and Justin White are the guys who run Data Insights, and they are joining me now by Zoom. Guys, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Carrie. So everything I just said, was that about right? Do you have anything to add? So I I think everything you said is pretty much sums up a lot of it. Um, The one thing that I would say the caveat to is we sent the district a cease and desist letter Mm. back in October. So we hadn't actually filed the lawsuit. The cease and desist letter was to get them to stop doing what they were doing and to come to the table with us to, you know, um, rectify our differences so that we wouldn't have to take them to court. Um, So where we're at right now is 
we'll be entering a mediation with them uh, March 9th to hopefully resolve you know the wrongs that we believe they're committing so you have not sued them yet you're just you you've just asked them to go to mediation correct okay so right now you know kind of going to court will be the last resort mm. hopefully we can resolve this without having to waste the resources of taxpayers in the court system as well as the resources of the school district um, you know basically we believe if we can get a uh, a neutral third party to sit down and hear both sides, it's going to be pretty clear what has happened, <laughs> and ideally we can resolve this issue. So I mentioned in the opening that it, it's very clear that uh, the new system, which is called Focus Ed, uh, looks a lot like your system. You have a blog post. I posted it yesterday on, on Facebook, on uh, Nevada Voices' Facebook page, and I will post it with this. But talk to me on the radio uh, about how this looks similar to your site. Sure. So to give you a little bit of backstory of what happened there, uh, back in the summer of 2019, we met with the regional superintendent, Debbie Brockett, to show her what we were doing with schools. And when we showed her, gave her a demonstration of the site of how we support schools, she said it was the most amazing product she's ever seen to the point that she said, if the district doesn't contract with you to get this in every single school, I'm going to quit working for the district and start my own <laughs> charter network just so I could use this product. Mm -hmm. That's how enthusiastic she was about it. A few weeks later, maybe a month later, she reaches out to us and says she thinks she's got the ball rolling for the district to enter into negotiations with us is what we're led to believe and that we would probably be working with Ms. Kelly O'Rourke, who is over the department that does data for the school district. Mm -hmm. A few months after that, we find out that that department has reached out to our clients and has said, hey, we want to come out and learn how you're working with data. And then when they get there, it turns out they're sending a team of programmers essentially demanding to go into our site and look at every single page and take recordings of our application. And they spend hours going through this uh, and going through our application. And during this time, we now have essentially radio silence from both Debbie Brockett and Kelly O'Rourke. And so we never hear from them what's happening. All we know is we think they want to work with us and we think that they want us to be working with every school in the district. So cut to then a few months after that, the district is rolling out their revised dashboards to school principals and showing them their new dashboards. And now all of a sudden, their application looks almost exactly like ours, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. they had prior to this, their own set of data dashboards, but as you kind of alluded to earlier, people were frustrated with them. It doesn't work well. It's hard to understand. But they had already designed, let's say, for example, a chronic absenteeism dashboard. Mm -hmm. So we know what their work looks like when they create it on their own. Now, all of a sudden, months later, they're unveiling this new product after they've gone out to the clients that we work with. And their new dashboard looks exactly like our dashboard. They've completely reorganized how they organize the system. So now the organization system looks like our system. Um, they even went as far as like, we have our logo up in the top left-hand corner, which is like a graduation hat cap with a arrow going around it. Uh -huh. And they put up a little logo in the top left-hand corner with like a circle going around it. <laughs> and it's just, it's so asinine and laughable, the levels at which they chose to copy what we were doing. Um, yeah, if you're going to steal somebody's work, you probably should change it so it doesn't look like their work. Uh-huh. I mean, it is as bad as, like, right, the eighth grader who goes and steals someone's uh, essay paper and then copies their name, too. It's, it is <laughs> it's remarkable what's happened. Well, and it's to the point when, when they started unveiling this to principals, we started getting phone calls from people congratulating us because mm -hmm. they thought that they had that the district had bought our system. 
And they were astounded when we told them, like, we don't know what you're talking about. They're like, well, their new system looks a lot like yours. Very interesting, Justin. Um, so let's talk about your um, what you allege four things, basically. One is copyright, which you've just talked about. Uh, the other is a violation of uh, AB 469, which I just explained is the reorg law. Uh, another is that CCSD is forcing an inferior product on schools. Uh, another is that they're spending more money to get less from the data. Um, and CC, and the, then you end with CCSD is, is wasting money and breaking the law to grab power from schools, which is a very interesting sentence. But let's talk right now about how you guys allege that they're breaking the reorg law. Reorg law. You want to take that, Justin? Sure. So under the reorg law, the, in, the intent and purpose and vision of the Nevada legislature was to empower schools to do what was best for them to allow the school organization teams to decide how to best serve their students, recognizing that schools across the district vary quite a bit. Um, there are rural schools, there's urban schools, suburban schools, um, schools have different needs. So the intent of the law is allowing schools to purchase the services, tools, products to serve their kids, to serve their teachers. And it's under that guise that schools that we, it was one of the intentions behind the development of my education data was to serve schools and work closely with schools. So it was a really good fit when um, schools started reaching out to us and they said, you know, we needed help with data and the services that we provided are really geared towards that. Um, so by taking that choice away from schools and not allowing schools to purchase us for the 2020-2021 school year, they're stripping that power away from the schools and not allowing them to make the purchases and services that they have the right to do under the reorganization law. Mm -hmm. Schools have the ability to say, uh, I want to use this service or this service. And, and for the most part, like if they want to bring in a DJ for an event, they can just pay that DJ out of cash. But for you guys, they have to do a purchase order. And what, and I've spoken to about half a dozen principals who tell me that they were never told that, uh, that they couldn't use your services anymore. They were, they just found out because it wasn't approved in the purchase order. Um, and then when they called, they were like, oh yeah, it's not approved. And they still have not heard from anybody higher up in the district to tell them why <laughs> we're not we can only hear what the uh, principals tell us and they're they're telling us that they're not being given a reason i mean we've had principals who have said i wasn't given a reason no one will explain to me like my school organizational team has approved this uh we put it in our budget we have it in our school performance plan there is no reason this should not be approved so i'm submitting it again and they'll submit it again and it will get denied again. And a second time, they still will get no reason why this has happened. And for you know the listeners who don't aren't familiar with the reorganization law, I just want to read one quote from the law, mm -hmm. what it says. Okay. And it says, the superintendent shall transfer to each local school precinct the authority to carry out the following responsibilities. Among those is procure such equipment, services, and supplies as the local school precinct deems necessary or advisable to carry out the plan of operation for the local school precinct. Equipment, services, and supplies may be procured from the large school district in which the local school precinct is located or elsewhere. Mm, you're right? the elsewhere. But, right. But such procurement must be carried out in accordance with the applicable policies of the large school district. So, we have done every aspect of that, mm -hmm. right? We provide the equipment and services that these schools have put into their school operational plan, right? There's schools who've posted meeting minutes from their school organizational teams saying that they've come to agreement to purchase our services. Mm -hmm. Yet, for some reason, and we don't know why, it's being denied. Well, okay. And in your the blog post that you put up, you talked about 
the times, and I have written about the times uh, that uh, Superintendent Jara has tried to undermine uh, the reorganization law, right? There was uh, the deans thing where he just kind of unilaterally said, we're, we're going to get rid of deans. And principals came back to him and said, you can't do that. That's our decision. You know, just give us the money and we will decide what to do with the money. Uh, and and I, I don't disagree that deans may be not a resource that we need in the school district. It, it's just the way that it was done. Uh, and now they're trying to force surplus teachers onto particular schools. That's an ongoing thing. Uh, and then there was AB2, which I wrote about extensively, uh, which was a, a sort of a sneaky attempt to get the legislature in the summer to take away uh, schools carryover money, uh, which is also part of the reorg. Um, but I find it interesting that you haven't heard from anybody in the district. I mean, I, obviously somebody had to say, yeah, we'll go to we'll go to arbitration. But what took so long? We submitted the cease and desist at the end of October. And I think that is of, of 2020. And I think maybe around November, their general counsel was no longer with them. So then they had to hire a new general counsel. And at this during this time, uh, CCSD has hired outside legal counsel to represent them in this matter. Ah. So we've been working essentially with that outside counsel who he only knows what the district tells them. So when while they were replacing their general counsel, we were all kind of left twiddling our thumbs and waiting. Interesting. Uh, to be fair, you guys used to work for the district. You left uh, to um, working for the district uh, to create this company after Reorg started. There have been grumblings that maybe you took some data with you. Um, you know that 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 you kind of this is unfair what you're doing. What do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Like people will make up the most ludicrous rumors and. If you don't know the backstory or like think about it for a second, it can sound like a plausible idea, right? Like, oh, these guys took some data to go start a company and they're going to have, oh, this plethora of data to start a company. And that sounds nefarious and like, oh, did they? Did they do that? But as soon as you think about it, like, who the hell wants old school district data? <laughs> right? Like, I can't go to Givens Elementary and be like, hey, uh, I don't know if you guys need any help, but I have some old graduation data from Coronado. <laughs> Would you like to see it? Right. It's 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 so absurd on its face. As soon as you start to think about it for a second, like, what what would you do with old education data? Like it, it's it's difficult work to engage people with current data. Right. It is, actually impossible to get them to care about some other school's old data. Right. Um, yeah, so that, that never happened. We never uh, took any data from the school district. There's nothing um, nefarious about why we left on our behavior. Like the actual reason we left was mm -hmm. because the reorganization law made it possible for us to work directly with schools. Right. We both worked in the central office when we worked in the school district and we're really good at what we do and we take pride in doing it well. And we want to be able to contribute to improving students lives. When we were working in the central office, that's just not the work you do. You end up doing a lot of work to kind of for whatever the leadership wants. Right. Like they need a report to show survey results by region for the school board. Right. But nobody even knows what a region is. Nobody cares. <laughs> so you end up doing a whole bunch of work to make it look like this strategic plan matters. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. ultimately, all the time Justin, you want to jump in here? Yes. I was going to say, we tell people all the time that we had to stop working for the district so we could start working for the schools because that is not <laughs> what we were challenging to do when we're in the district. And that's why, and it's alluded to this, that is what we're passionate about. We are passionate about making sure that kids get the best education possible. To do that, we have to support schools. And to do that, we had to leave the district. Right. And that is the, that's the number one thing that I hear. I cannot do uh, my job 
because I have to go through all this bureaucracy. Yeah, it'd be great to be able to do it this way. We can't because uh, we have to support this kind of this weird thing that the superintendent or the assistant superintendent wants to do. Um, I want to go to uh, your next part of your lawsuit, which is that you say it's an inferior, not your lawsuit, your complaint, uh, which is you say it's an inferior co- uh, product. How is it inferior? From the reports that we've seen and the principals that we've talked to who have used that new system, the piece that we hear consistently over and over and over again is it's slow. It's mm-hmm. the, and the biggest one is like the data is not right. <laughs> they tried to copy our designs, but if the numbers and data they're putting into the designs and the charts is wrong or isn't updated, like it isn't useful. And that is the thing that when we talk to the principals in the district that we used to work with, that's the piece that we hear over and over and over again is that even where they where they copied us, that's not the right data is going in there. They aren't calculating things correct. They're just a screw loose somewhere is the thread that we kind of keep hearing over and over again. Yeah. So some stuff that I would add to that as well is not only is what they're copying, we believe to be inferior, they're not copying everything we do, right? We go well beyond what they're capable of doing. Uh, yes. So for example, over the last three years, only school administrators could log into the, their system. In our system, students log in, parents log in, teachers log in, right? We have a whole, we work very hard to make sure everyone can engage in this information, right? Because the core belief of of our theory of change is if you can change conversations, then you can change mindsets. If you can change mindsets, then you'll change actions. So it's really important for us that we ensure we're making a product even students can engage with, right? Because we have to change their actions as well. Right. That's not something that they focus on. It's not something they do. So we have a whole bunch of functionality that that they don't even attempt to copy. Interesting. Yeah. And and I have talked to principals who have told me this. Like one principal said, here's the difference between Data Insight and the district service. Uh, uh, It's like the difference between an HMO and concierge healthcare. HMO is one size fits all. It's not customizable. You get no assistance. And everybody I talked to said, I can call them on one day and they're there the next day. And not only do they have a solution, but they have an innovative solution. And then uh, if they've if they've done something at another school that they, that they think might help us that we haven't even thought of, they'll be like, hey, would you like us to do this for you also? Uh, and s- somebody else told me that you guys are focused. You guys actually did a social emotional uh, database uh, to 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 help teachers and students recognize the social emotional issues that were going on. Um, that's not something that I, I think the district even would would consider. Uh, so talk to me about that kind of uh, service. And if you did grow, I mean there are three hundred and fifty schools in the district. If you did grow and you were working with, oh, say, 40 or 50 rather, well, actually, no, 100 rather than your 35 or 36, um, how, would you t- how would you deal with that if you did grow that way? Well, first, let me say thank you so much for sharing that. Like, that makes my day to know that, you know, they felt like we were providing that type of service because that is what we were striving to do. So yeah. that, I mean, totally, that makes my, my month. Um, And another thing that I'll say about that, you know, that we try to support them again to this idea of we believe education is a human relationship business. So we're constantly trying to strengthen that for them. And I want to give you one story that is so powerful and just I'm really proud of. It is at Orr Middle School, they had a Title I parent meeting. And the first meeting that they had, I think like three parents showed up. And the second meeting that they had, no parents showed up. Then before the third meeting, they printed out the student profile report that we have available for them in our system. And they sent it home to every parent and said, the next Title I parent meeting, we're going to be going over this report. That meeting was standing room only in their theater. Wow. Right. And so 
that is the type of service and support that we try to provide them to help them engage their parents, their students, and their community. So it, it we believe it's so much more than just like some data dashboards. Like right. that is part of what we do, but it is not the essence of what we do. So to so that's to kind of that point. The next point, like if we were to grow to a hundred schools or two hundred schools, right, right. Um, the one thing that's nice is it being a lot of it code driven, we get to reuse a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? We're not constantly starting with scratch from scratch every single time we bring on a new school, which allows us the ability to scale much easier mm -hmm. than say perhaps just a strictly service oriented business. Um, so we're able to scale a lot easier than, than most companies. Um, but with that, we constantly have people who reach out to us who see something we've done, whether it's the presentation to the legislature or something we put on Twitter or something that we did with the Harvard Strategic Data Project, who reach out to us and say, wow, what you guys are doing is amazing. Are you hiring right now? We have people who want to work with us and who, you know, we would love to grow our business. Unfortunately, we're kind of in this spot right now where we're spending way too much of, my of our time fighting to support schools instead of supporting schools. Right. Uh, I want to, um, you, we were talking about the fact that uh, every principal I've talked to and, and the ones you've talked to have said that the the district's uh, software is inferior. Uh, first of all, it didn't get rolled out till te to teachers until January. It got rolled out to admin in late fall. Uh, and you guys would have been ready to go at the beginning of the year. But I want to play something from... Um, the school district meeting in February 2019 when they were going over this strategic plan. This is uh, Diane Gullett, uh, who is an uh, associate superintendent. So when we look at a comprehensive data dashboard, it needs to incorporate a lot of the components of all of the formative assessment processes, the state data. Uh, we have limited capacity in creating that. Mm -hmm. And in order to do something that's useful to our district offices and most especially our schools, we need to have some expertise in providing that. So we have to be able to uh, look at data that's going to be uh, relevant and timely and something that can be monitored and that will incorporate some of the scorecards that we're talking about and something that's useful for a school to pull up day to day that's very useful um, and so that any staff member can access it and immediately use it to drive instruction. So, Trustee Garvey? Yeah, so. I got, I got what it is. Yep. How much does it cost? <laughs> and how long would it take to make it? So we have not to, we have not yet determined how much it will cost. This is one of the things that we've identified as a needed strategy. And as I mentioned, quite honestly, that we do not have the capacity internally to create it. So we have to develop if this is something that we're moving forward with, which we think is very critical. We have to um, look outside for um, our best investment and determine what's research-based, where has it been useful and effective in increasing uh, student achievement, and then we will go from there and making some recommendations. So that's fascinating to me, right? We have to look outside to see uh, where this has been used successfully before. Hmm, I wonder who outside of the school district has been using this successfully. I, am I wrong, or does it seem to me that she was saying, we want to partner with Data Insight Partners? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't say who she was alluding to, but right. one thing that I will kind of give some clarification to here is when she said, we don't have the capacity, mm. she wasn't saying we don't have the people. She was saying we don't have the talent because mm. they were already had a whole department whose jobs were to make data dashboards. Right. Right. So, so you have to then question like what happened between then and all of a sudden, a year later, that they have these dashboards, they don't have the talent to design. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, you know, take Colombo to connect those dots <laughs> of what they did. It also interests me that Garvey, uh, former trustee uh, Chris Garvey, said, how much is this going to cost? Diane Gullett at first didn't answer that. She just said, we don't have the people to do it. 
Um, so it doesn't really matter. And we're looking at people outside. I mean, it very much seemed to me when I heard that, that, that they were going to be starting negotiations with you, which is what you understood uh, talking to Debbie Brockett, um, actually, a few months later, a few months after this. So, um, so there's that part of it. The other part of it, though, is that one of the things that you allege in this complaint is that uh, the district is actually paying more than what they would be paying to use your services. So how do you know that? How do you know that the district is paying more? How much did you charge uh, schools to do services for them? I can, I want to jump back to kind of one other piece that okay. Deputy Superintendent Gullett hit on, which, and Trustee Garvey asked, like, how long will this take? And I, like, listening to that whole clip, I have to say is pretty upsetting but one of the things there is the idea, you had mentioned that they um, rolled their new product out to administrators this fall. And it, it is our understanding, they haven't even rolled it out to all teachers yet. Right. And it's only out to a small number of teachers. And one of the things that's most upsetting about that is if they had done what they said they were gonna do and look outside and engage with us, they all would have it. Right. They would have it already. They would have had it at the beginning of the school year. Um, so I'll let Nathan kind of pick up on that cost analysis, but I had to add that. And it's just so frustrating to think the opportunities missed by students and teachers. Um, I mean, we, we live to serve, we wanted to serve, we could be serving right now. And instead they chose to, to infringe and kind of break the intent and the law of the reorg. Nathan. So as far as how we determine that they're paying more to get less is all of the money that they spend is publicly available data, right? So we know that there is a department called data services that is doing their data visualization. So if we just look at the salary of their, of the coordinator who's over that department and their data visualization specialists who work in that department, just the staff salaries uh, and benefits, it's costing them 700, over $750,000 a year. Hmm. Then, that staff isn't just developing this product, they're buying a license for Tableau for, to do data visualization. Ah. That license is costing them another 330,000 a year. So they're spending over a million dollars a year to try and copy our product. Now, depending on the amount of support they want from us, we absolutely can come in under that cost. Interesting. So if you did a, a, a contract with central services, let's talk about this in terms of the reorg. Uh, not all schools would be mandated to use your services. They could use your services, uh, but because it would be part of central services, because it was an approved contract overall, then that would be taken out of their budgets. And you're saying that you could bring it in for less than what they're paying now. Okay, so I want to get to this. Your the the um, hearing, the arbitration is March 9th. What do you want out of this? So, I mean, a day doesn't go by that we're not living what's happening to us. Right? We're we just out of the blue had seventy percent of our business gone, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. the, but we're not laying people off. Like we're still paying our staff as if we still had that business. So what we need is a third party who's gonna to come to this neutral and say, here's what would be right, right? Here's, here's how we rectify what's happening here. Like essentially, we wanna get back to work and we need someone who can sit down and say, what's happening right now is wrong, right? You can't just infringe on people's copyrights. You can't just elite, what we believe to be illegally blocking contracts. We want all of that stuff to stop. We wanna get back to work with schools. Um, Justin, how did it feel when the calls started to come in from schools saying, hey, we're not allowed to use your product anymore? Yeah, I mean, it was gut-wrenching. I mean, just having this conversation is difficult. Just thinking back on, on those conversations, we, I mean, we're a local company. We live here in Southern Nevada. Our kids go to school in Clark County. Like, we're here to serve. So to hear that we've we've invested all of our time effort money developing this tool to support schools students teachers in clark county and here i mean 
hear from schools, like not even a reason why, just like, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. It's not getting approved. Yeah. Like we reached out to, we had multiple calls with the purse season department and they couldn't tell us anything either. They also didn't know why things weren't being approved. So this, yeah. Who approves them? I would say, who, if, if purchasing doesn't approve them, who approves them? It seemed to be a bit of a mystery. We, it seemed like we and schools were getting a bit of a runaround of who is supposed to be approving these things. Hmm. Interesting. It sounds like a familiar M.O. Uh, Nathan Trenholm and Justin White, who you just heard from, are the partners of Data Insight Partners. They provide data to schools, and uh, every principal I has, have talked to said they provide good data and good service to schools and are needed. We will do an update after the March 9th hearing. Good luck to you guys and thank you for being on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Carrie. This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Two bills are making their way through the assembly right now that will have a big impact on how we handle traffic violations. AB 116, introduced by District 10 Assemblywoman Rochelle Wynn, would make traffic violations and their attendant fees a civil rather than a criminal violation. That means if people don't pay their fees, government entities in Nevada cannot put them in jail. AB 151, sponsored by District 16, freshman assemblywoman Cecilia Gonzalez will make it against the law to take someone's driver's license away for unpaid traffic fines. Thousands of people a year end up in jail because they can't afford to pay their fees or have their license suspended, but they still have to get to work. This often means loss of job, loss of homes, loss of residency status, all for making a right turn on red when they weren't supposed to. We're talking to one of our regular contributors, Lisa Mosley, who is the Nevada State Director for the Fines and Fees Justice Center. And we're talking to Assemblywoman Rochelle Wynn, who brought forward AB 116. So Assemblywoman, let's start with you. Um, What is the difference between a civil violation and a criminal violation? Well, most people don't know. A lot of our traffic, our current traffic citations are actually criminal misdemeanors. And we don't have any kind of level of misdemeanors. So whether you're feeding pigeons, you are speeding, you are jaywalking, or you are committing battery or assault, it is all a criminal misdemeanor. And they all carry with them a potential penalty of up to six months in the Clark County or any kind of local detention center, I Mm -hmm. should say. So how would I, as a driver who sometimes overstays my parking meter or who has been known to try and fail to make a yellow light, how would I know that I'm getting a criminal penalty rather than a civil penalty? You probably wouldn't. And that's why I don't think that this should be some sort of drastic change. I think most people don't realize that it is a criminal penalty. Um, And you have a lot of people that are using this, uh, have used this long, a long time as an argument for why people are not speeding is because they think they're going to go to jail. Mm. When I would argue that most people don't realize that. So, um, you know, you wouldn't know. Lisa, I would think that um, if I'm pulled over and I haven't paid my ticket because I can't afford to pay my ticket and I have a broken taillight and then they haul me off to jail, I would be shocked because why are you hauling me off to jail for a traffic ticket? Well, you would, you you probably would be shocked, but there are plenty <laughs> members of our Las Vegas community that wouldn't be shocked. This happens way too often mm. with someone having an outstanding traffic warrant for failure to pay a fine or a fee or an assessment. It happens an awful lot. And I'll share this with you. I got a call from a gentleman this morning who is 67 years old lives in Henderson, he's on social security, and he had a ticket that he could not pay. And he was driving a friend's car. And I don't remember what the violation was that they pulled him over for, but they hauled him off to jail. Mm. He's 67 years old. 
he's not, he doesn't fit the demographic that you, that normally, well, I shouldn't say normally, that has experienced these kinds of things. He called me and he was in tears this morning. So what I'm saying is this is happening to all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. You know, the narrative is that it happens mostly to black and brown communities, but this was a 67 year old white retired man. And yeah. so those are the kinds of stories that we are trying to highlight because he didn't expect to go to jail either, but it is happening. And so we're hoping that this legislation can get through and that we can provide some relief for people. So at least they're not going to jail. And of course, we don't want to see people not pay their fines or their fees. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's not what the purpose of this is. Mm -hmm. We just want to see people not be arrested and hauled off to jail and spend so many days in jail where they're in some cases, losing their job. I've heard stories of people who are losing their children because like Assemblywoman said, this could carry six months in jail. Yeah. And and I've also heard stories of people being deported. I mean, that's, that's where the 287G thing comes in. Uh, if you are put in the Clark County Jail, they will check you out and, and contact ICE. And, uh, and then you can be deported simply for having a broken taillight. Absolutely. And I, I want to say this, that we worked, Fines and Fees Justice Center, we've done some work with some students over at UNLV who have just done some research for us and researching which zip codes we see most of these violations from. And also, what are people getting tickets for? What are they getting these tickets for? And surprisingly, the top 10 reasons that people are getting outstanding traffic warrants or tickets have nothing to do with driving. They have nothing to do with public safety. They're not reckless driving. They're not even moving violations. They're things like driving on an expired license mm. or a expired registration or having a broken tail light or something like that. They're not even related to driving, so to speak. And so we want to make sure, we want to try to address those issues. Assemblywoman, when uh, there are seven sponsors of this bill, including you, 23 co-sponsors, um, significantly two of the co-sponsors or the sponsors uh, are Majority Leader Nicole Canizero and Senate Judiciary Chairwoman Melanie Scheibel. This is important because both of them work for the district attorney's office. Um, so in other words, they're prosecutors. How important was it for you? What signal does it send to have a couple of prosecutors on this bill? You know, I, I think it it speaks more to this being a good policy that we need to go forward with in our state. I think there was some momentum in the last session, and I think that there was a growing momentum, and I think there were organizations that came in, like the Fines and Fees Justice Center, and some others that um, really went on an education campaign for a lot of our educators to show them that we can do this better. We can do this differently. Um, I know that there is a big effort to find ways to uh, save taxpayer dollars unnecessarily. Mm. I think there is a huge movement to be fair and thoughtful about who we are incarcerating, why we are incarcerating, and whether or not that's an effective way to deter like, you know, what we see as bad behavior in our society. And I think that has just kind of all come together and it's the time, the time is right. Um, I did not have to do much convincing to get Speaker Frierson and um, Assembly Chair, um, Judiciary Chair Yeager to sign on board. And I honestly didn't have to do much to get um, Leader Canizaro and Senator Scheibel right. to sign on as co-sponsors. In fact, they sought me out when they found out I was bringing this legislation again and really wanted to be a part of this change. So um, that, that gave me some hope. It, it passed the assembly in mm -hmm. 2019 with quite a bit of bipartisan support as well. And I anticipate that um, we will work and we will be able to get that like bipartisan support as well going forward. So two things you bring up. One is uh, I want to know if you're going to, if there are going to be more bills uh, that deal with uh, who we should put in jail and how we should do justice. And the other thing is, is that um, the bipartisan support, there was, a, there was a, um, a pilot program of this in Carson City. Did you all talk about this as you were examining the bill? We did. And in fact, it kind of motivated me to um, file this bill. We had a meeting with Carson City and they had talked about how they had kind of engaged in, they saw the writing on the wall from the 2019 session, thought, 
you know what, this, this could save us money. This could save us time. This could get our officers, um, save us money from the officers having to pull someone over, finding out they have a warrant, impounding that person's car, mm -hmm. taking that person down to the jail, booking them into the jail. Um, you know, having someone serve up to on average 72 hours in the detention center on that traffic warrant, only to have them um, later give, be given credit for time served and released now without a car, you know, probably without a job, probably without housing. And so they really took that and they decided we're not going to issue warrants any longer. We're not going to add additional fees. And they had a lot of success. And so that kind of motivated me to say, hey, if Carson City can do this, we can do this as a state. So that's kind of what I think in the back of my head as I'm moving through and we're processing this um, language. Okay, and more bills to uh, look do justice differently? Um, I have another bill that I've been working that has a lot of like cross aisle and cross like community support um, in um, banning quotas for arrests and citations. Mm. Um, there are several agencies that still unfortunately do this. And so I think this is good, a good piece of legislation, um, you know, to prevent unnecessary stops because people feel compelled to give out a certain amount of tickets or do a certain amount of arrests that people are just doing because they want to get those numbers for either promotion or um, as a, the scope of their job. And that really shouldn't be, justice should not be um, unquantified in that way. Uh, Lisa, we were talking about costs. Uh, Assemblywoman uh, Wynn did a really good job of, you know, detailing the costs of giving somebody a ticket and taking them to jail and impounding their car and what have you. Uh, how much do we generally spend uh, to arrest somebody? Some of the numbers that we've gotten on average is anywhere from $145 to $164 today. That is per officer per day that is costing them to pull someone over, arrest them, tow their car, transport them to jail and book them. That's an average. But in addition to what it costs their officers to haul somebody to jail, tow their car, they have to verify those warrants if they're trapped warrants every month. So that's more officer time. Mm. And so when you add in the cost of what it costs for an officer, what it costs for jail staff, what it costs for civilian staff, the cost is, just gets higher and higher. And Carson City has shown us that it is much more efficient when you don't have those barriers like warrants in place that prevent people from being able to pay their fines. So Assemblywoman Nguyen, let's talk about AB 151. You are co-sponsor of this bill. Uh, it's kind of a twin to this, I feel. I do see it kind of um, pairing uh, nicely with the decriminalizing of traffic. I'm happy that multiple people all realize that this is an important thing that we need to do that will add to more equity and fairness in our justice system. So both of these bills have been read in committee and they are off to the printer. Um, <laughs> so when will they get hearings? I have some ongoing working groups to make sure that it is done seamlessly, to make sure that we are not adding costs, um, how we can make this retroactive. Um, so mm. going forward or including people in the past, I would hate for a speeding ticket on one day to be a criminal citation and on the next day for it to be a civil infraction. So I think there is still a lot of work to do on it. So I'm trying to work on that as fast as I can <laughs> with a lot of different working groups to make sure that the language that we have, at least conceptually and some of those conceptual amendments um, when we present it as in a better place. It's a pretty large bill. It's a lot of pages. And mm. so we want to make sure we get it right. And so um, I know that we will have a hearing on it. I anticipate that it'll be, um, you know, sooner rather than later. But I do want to make sure that we are able to kind of take some of the concerns on all sides to make sure that it like is seamlessly enacted if it does pass. Rochelle Wynn is Assemblywoman for District 10. You've also been listening to Lisa Mosley, who is the Nevada State Director for the Fines and Fees Justice Center. Thank you both for being with me today. Thank you for having me, Carrie. Yes, thank you for having me. Another episode of Impact has come and gone. Thanks to Nathan Trenholm and Justin White, whose arbitration hearing is March 9th. 
Thanks also to Lisa Mosley and Assemblywoman Rochelle Nguyen for talking to us about how fines and fees create inequality. And thanks to Sarah Walker for the update on life with COVID. I still want to give her a hug and maybe will someday. Impact is a co-production of UNLV and Nevada Voice. We are on every Saturday morning and at KUNV.org. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Impact.